Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a very special guest today, Nick Norris. I like the alliteration. Uh, also, Chuck Norris, right? Appreciate so, um, yep. tell us who you are and what it's you a do. Distant relative. Is it really? I mean, there, there can't be that. Uh, well, that's not his real name, right? Isn't what's his real name? His, I thought it was Chuck Norris. No, it's. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna dash my 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 hopes and dreams today. I think his real name is something weird. Maybe it is Chuck Norris. I don't know. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm thinking of John Wayne. His name is Marion Morrison. His real name, which is that okay. was that was disappointing to find out. Anyways, tell us who you are. And Thank what you God. Do. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Nick Norris. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? All the way. <laughs> All the way. Uh, Nick Norris uh, grew up in Chicago, Naval Academy grad, uh, served in the SEAL teams from 03 to 13, um, transitioned off active duty, which seems like ages ago. And uh, now I'm a, an entrepreneur, um, started a company called Protect Products, and uh, sit on the board for a nonprofit called Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions that is probably the leader in in helping uh, with the, the veteran health mm. epidemic uh, and uh, utilizing psychedelics as a modality um, to catalyze, uh, you know, true change on that front. So that's that's me in brief. Uh, I'm sure we can we could talk more and you can ask me what you what you will. And yeah, sure. Answer. Yeah, I'm curious about uh, your ex- what, what years did you say you were at the academy? Uh, I was there from '99 to '03. Mm, so that was a pretty uh, transformational period for all the service academies because instead of, uh, I guess, producing people who were, I, I, the, just the c- career trajectory was different then, right? Like you didn't expect totally necessarily different. to go right into combat and things like that. No, no, no. I mean, I and I've spoke a lot about that. Um, you know, when the towers fell, like everything changed, right. Cause they were sending guys, uh, you know, naming from the Academy, it's a guys going into the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to hear about guys going over to Afghanistan in 2001. And then we started to, uh, we started to actually have, uh, graduates killed. So perspective changed significantly. It was no longer just like a cool, challenging thing to do. It was uh, a real, sense of accountability and a responsibility for, for taking on a leadership role and then going into combat. And I assume, uh, did, uh, did, did Bush or anybody Rumsfeld, somebody come to the Academy and kind of tell you guys, give you guys a psych up speech or whatever. I know they come for the commencements and things like that, but yeah. 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 You know, what's funny. I don't think we ever had anybody. I mean, I'm sure we had a couple notable figures show up for like forest all lectures, but, uh, Rumsfeld spoke at our commencement and then I believe Bush came out for uh, the year prior for, for O2 and, and did the commencement address. You probably want like the lowest profile, lowest ranking dude in government coming to that thing because then your command isn't so crazy about everything, right? Oh, dude. Yeah. It, yeah. It, the higher profile, the individual, the more of a nightmare it is for everybody that uh, oh, yeah. is participating. Yeah. It was so dumb. <laughs> so in, uh, we, uh, we deployed with a surge. So Jared Taylor, you know, Jared, he's on the, I think he's on the board of, uh, of vets as well. He right. Is. Um, yep. when we got back, I think it was late March of, uh, 2008. Then we did, I was in the 82nd. So we did division review 
a couple of months later and it was bush because we had done the surge and everything came out god what a shit show it was a complete nightmare like they had we were out on one of the parade grounds and they had uh like metal detectors showed up we had to take the springs and followers out of our m4 mags like come on man what are you what are we doing here you know what i mean um it was so goofy anyways yeah i mean just the 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 tone of the service academy especially had to change because that's that's one place there aren't a whole lot of uh institutions you can be a part of that aren't active military i guess technically that is active military but like actually active military where at that point that there was a timeline on war right like we're getting ready to go actually do something that you right. spend yeah. three four five if you're a grad student sometimes longer years in i mean that's that had to change things quite a bit for you guys yeah, I mean, I think it did for anybody, especially if you were pursuing, you know, combat arms, right? If you're going to go into the Marine Corps and, and pursue an infantry uh, job or you're going into the SEAL teams or EOD or something, you, you knew that things were going to get real. Mm. And, you know, as I've said before, it was kind of a personal challenge prior to 9-11. You know, I wanted to do it selfishly, probably for myself, just to prove that I could do something difficult. And then post 9-11, you know, you had really do some soul searching and mm. determine if you were doing it for the right reason so i mean and and that's the right thing right you want to be in that mindset if you're going to pursue you know any type of uh leadership role in combat and it and not just as an officer right i mean like you know there's leadership through the ranks and if you're going into it with any type of selfish uh mindset i think it you know it's the wrong reason to go sure yeah um yeah i always uh think about it it's kind of uh, cheesy, but that scene in uh, 300 where the Greeks are like, you guys only brought 300 soldiers, and it's like, you guys brought a bunch of farmers, dude. Like, we're here to fight. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's really interesting, um, the turnaround. Now, I, I'm not – just this doesn't really have anything to do with anything. I'm just kind of curious. Uh, when you're in the Naval Academy, what's the pipeline to BUDS and all that stuff look like? Is it is it just – you got to do, do you select an MOS when you're at the Academy or how does it work? I don't really know. Yeah. You kind of have to wait till the 11th hour, mm. you, you know, you go through service selection. I mean, there's a ton of stuff leading up to it that, that really shapes whether or not you're going to get what you, you want to do, but you don't find out until like, I mean, late first semester, or early second semester, I believe uh, senior year. Oh, wow. So, you know, yeah, as a freshman, I mean, like there's probably, 300 dudes that wanted to go into the seal teams mm. or go to buds right everybody wants to do that because you know it seems super cool uh and then you start uh you start going through selection right right away so like i went to selection at school for to go to dive school after mm. freshman year i went to selection to go to jump school at benning after sophomore year and then you go to selection to go to mini buds which is like buds light not even it's a couple weeks long over the summer and all those things uh, to include kind of your grades, your participation, athletics, all that stuff, it factors in. And then you go to a board, you sit in front of a bunch of uh, senior enlisted and officers, they interview you and then they determine, you know, at, at the time that I was there, it was uh, 16 of us. But one of us, uh, a guy named Pete Scobell, was actually a prior enlisted SEAL. So he he very likely was going to take one of the billets. So that we had about 15 billets to go into seal training or, or buds at that point. So if you're a prior enlisted and you go, uh, I mean, look, not a whole lot of prior enlisted people go to the Academy in the first place, but if you're prior enlisted and you go to the Academy, uh, 
and you had already graduated buds do you you have to go back through buds again or do you just what how no Thankfully, you do not. Oh, I was going to uh, say that would I'm, suck. Too. I'm sure. Jesus I know. I'm saying. I'm sure, I'm sure Pete was very thankful for <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, and you know, and, and I don't want to tell his story, but I, I think he was actually like, he really didn't even, uh, I think initially want to go to the Naval Academy. I think he had done a platoon on the East Coast, and I think they just saw something in him. One of his senior enlisted was like, "Hey, man, like I think you should go and do this." So he reluctantly went. So it would be terrible if he had to go back through uh, buds again if he got selected so uh he did not. no that's that's definitely good that, that would have been <laughs> that would have been absolutely terrible um so you were in the navy from uh i guess technically from 99 until when exactly till i got off active duty in 13 and then i spent some time in the reserves uh decided to transition fully off mm-hmm. uh just just to focus on family and and you know professionally i i was just in a position where you know, deploying again or getting activated to deploy uh, just wasn't in the cards. And I and I want to be honest with myself and the unit that I was attached to. And, uh, you know, if I can't commit, I can't commit. Right. right. You know, so I, I decided to get off active. The reserve component, um, you know, probably three years after leaving active duty. Does uh, the Navy have uh, like the Army has 19th and 20th Special Forces Group? Is there something like that for SEALs in the Navy, a reserve unit? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Two East coast and a West coast seal team. Mm. Uh, so seal team 17 and I think 18, uh, might may stand corrected, but yeah. Um, basically, you know, you do the, the reserve gig, mm. a, a lot of support to kind of like the auxiliary commitments. Uh, and like when I was in, we were doing a lot of stuff with, uh, in like South Korea and supporting kind of that, that effort over there and maintaining a, you know, some type of commitment, um, with the South Koreans. Cool. Well, that's enough for the bio. Let's get into uh, some meat and potatoes here. Um, you're a Naval Academy graduate. What do you, what, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of bad press, I guess, surrounding how we're operating the academies and how we're operating even parts of the military right now. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I'm not sure you do, but anything you would like to share? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, and nothing uh, comes to mind uh, immediately, but uh, I'm happy to have a discussion about it i mean if you have you know anything that you you want my opinion on sure yeah i mean so you know you you mentioned multiple different selections to get access to things that's kind of how it works it's supposed to be a meritocracy right um sure and the diversity that we're primarily focused on in the military is diversity of capability not necessarily of any kind of uh biographic detail we don't really care about that typically um because it's not relevant right totally but the DEI stuff, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion stuff has, has kind of crept its way into the service academies now as well, um, even at the DOD. And I wonder from your perspective, look, we're not going to solve this problem because we're not on the Joint Chiefs. We're not at the service academies. And you and I are probably not going to run for politics either. But for, <laughs> for people who are looking to get involved, go to the academies or have family members in the academies or whatever – uh, what advice do you have for them to operate in that kind of environment? Because ultimately it is the ultimate meritocracy, right? Where we either succeed or we die. So just your thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah. I mean, Hey, I've, it, we've, we've had, to, we've seen kind of like a slow progression towards kind of diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I, it was a big uh, hot topic within the SEAL teams when I was you know, probably towards the end of my active duty time. And, you know, 
I agree kind of wholly with a guy named Andy Stump, who mm. I, I think you know pretty well. You know, I, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, for me, it's a, a true meritocracy, right? Like if you are capable of doing the job and I don't care what job that is, then the best person most capable of doing that job should be in the role. And, and it's so important with the with the military, right? I mean, we are we are charged with defending this country and our way of life and, and protecting those that can't protect themselves. And the last thing I would want to see happen is that we sacrifice capability for something like diversification or, or inclusion. Now, granted, we should never shut our doors and not allow uh, people to try to, to enter uh, any one branch of service or any uh, specific capability within the services. But once you go through that selection process, the selection process should not change. It should not be altered or obscured in order to uh, conform to some new policy. It, it really sure. should be a meritocracy, right? I mean, that's that's why we're here and that's why we've had you know the greatest military on the face of the earth. Sure, yeah, I agree with that 100%. I mean, it's... I like that you said no matter what the job is because especially over the last 10 years or so, um, the soft community has been augmented by non-operators quite a bit. And it's because yep. we've leaned on that community very heavily to accomplish a lot of stuff because, look, that's the world we live in now. We don't live in a, an attrition world anymore. We live in a precision strike world. So it makes sense, right? Now we have rangers on the unit you know, uh, doing breaching and stuff like that. That's been going on since what, 2010 or so. Um, same thing, slice elements on, on tier one and tier two units all over the place. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I think about it from, look, men are particularly good at feats of strength and violence and also mental compartmentalization, right? Uh, uh, which is not necessarily healthy long-term, but when you're on the X, it, it's very helpful, right? <laughs> um, and women are particularly good at creative thought and organization. And it, it's, you're fi we're finally starting to see more of this um, where the, the extremely talented women are being used in ways that benefit the effort, right? Instead of just trying to check a block somewhere like Shannon Kent, for example, RIP to her, but she's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her story. Um, her, no, I'm not. her husband's Joe Kent, who ran for Congress in Oregon. If you're familiar with him, he was a special forces guy, but she is, um, she was a Naval intelligence and, uh, was killed in a bombing, I think in 2019, January, 2019. But if you look at her service record, she's responsible for the killer capture of almost 600 terrorists, right? Mm. Not, not like the dumb Jay Shalmati dum-dums that we were fighting in, in Baghdad and shit, but like legit ISIS terrorists and things like that, like hard targets. And it makes like, we, we can't have an honest conversation about this stuff sometimes like, Oh, what do you think that's that women should just be doing this or men should just be doing this? Like, no, I think that people have innate biological skills and we need to use them to the best of their capability for our effort. That's kind of how it all works, right? Like I'm not going to put a six foot one guy at center in the NBA. It, it's not, and it's no offense. <laughs> I don't hate people that are six foot one. I don't want to box them out from doing a job or anything like that. I just want people to, you're setting people up to succeed there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, hey, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, I don't think we should, uh, you know, kind of, paint a picture that like, Hey, just this group of people is capable mm -hmm. of doing the job because, Hey, you know, human beings are a, a, uh, a wide ranging, capable, 
species and you know there's people from all walks of life that will surprise you at what they can be good at yeah. or are not good at. And so, you know what's really funny about that people have this idea of operators that they're all like six foot three Viking hulking dudes. And almost every, no. oper- every, almost every operator <laughs> I know is between five foot eight and, and five foot 10, like almost every single one of them is they're about the yeah, same if, general size. And if you met me, I'm like just shy as five foot six. So, yeah. and I'm not a hulking human being. Yeah. I'm telling you like <laughs> almost every tier one and tier two operator, there's, there's exceptions. Obviously there's some big dudes, especially in, uh, uh, in seals and special forces, but in like tier one units, you don't see a whole lot of big hulking dudes. I mean, it's like you're in, you're almost an endurance athlete at that point. Right. Totally. I mean, I, I saw that. I mean, I always had, uh, the thought that I needed to be the biggest person and mm. just like lift heavy and do and any, there's a, a time and a place for that. But while I was on active duty, I mean, we were doing long distance offset patrols into, into targets and, and villages and it actually was like a detriment to yeah. be heavier and bigger, right. right? So like being 160 pounds and being able to go all day and be able to carry a bunch of weight on my back was like way more productive for the overall group than, you know, being 190 pounds for my frame. Right. And then, you know, getting, you know, cramping and being dehydrated like three clicks into a patrol. So, yeah, you know, being being an endurance athlete and, and being strong but being able to carry weight over distance, I think, was like the most uh, important attribute mm. that you could emulate. Especially when you get into the mountains and stuff like that. I mean, you don't want to be carrying around a bunch of weight up there with the O2 levels uh, down. Anyways, yeah, it's all, see, we're having a conversation about characteristics that is irrespective of any kind of, uh, uh, I guess, biographical detail. You either fit this mold or you don't fit this mold. It doesn't matter. And none of the totally. other stuff really matters, right? Yep. Yeah, you don't you don't change a selection process regardless of what you're being selected to do, um, because of an agenda or some you know measure that is being forced into uh, you know an organization. It, it it should really be based on selecting the best people with the right criteria to do the best job humanly possible. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Let's pivot now. Um, I know you you're familiar. But for anybody that's a new listener, um, this show is kind of organized around a series of principles that I think um, kind of embody what the American experience is meant to be. And that, that experience is that you can either accept responsibility for the task you need to perform to, uh, I guess, ensure you have your rights. And you that that is what we refer to as a citizen, somebody that that exercises their responsibilities to attain their rights. And then, uh, or you can be a subject who is somebody who sits back and lets somebody else secure those rights for them. And uh, we all prefer to be the former, right? Because absolutely, it's a very American characteristic to not want to be told what to do. I don't know where that comes from. I, I've been all over the world and it isn't the same everywhere else. But here we're just like, nah, fuck you. I'm not doing that. Even if it makes sense sometimes, <laughs> we're like, nah, we're not doing that. Um, but <clears throat> there's a... Uh, there's a couple of uh, principles that you pulled out of the list that I want to touch on. What, the first one is I'll do something every day to help my country, my countrymen, or all men. Tell me what that means to you and why you think it's important. Um, well, it means everything to me. I mean, I, I, I entered the military and the SEAL team specifically because uh, 
I wanted to do my best and be my best, the best version of myself to support the people around me, um, you know, for a greater cause and, and to pursue a greater cause and a, a, a bigger mission. And that didn't end for me when I left active duty service. Um, you know, I've, I've committed myself in a very big way to, to mental health um, and veteran mental health, which has a cascade uh, effect on the rest of the population. Mm. You know, if we can, you know, do things to help our own, right, to help, you know, the guys that I served with in combat on the mental health front, you know, those things are going to permeate the rest of society and help everybody. And, you know, I feel like that's, that's like where I am making the biggest or have the potential to make the biggest impact now is to continue to take action to, to help the guys that I love and care about that I served alongside in combat. And, you know, frankly, you know, reluctantly, they don't, they, they ask for help and they don't want to ask for help, but, you know, to step up and, and actually be a voice to, to make sure that, you know, those guys are, are getting the help that they need and, and via the modalities that are going to be most effective to help them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it makes me, it's the thing that drives me and makes me feel uh, most fulfilled is, is doing something for others with no expectation of anything in return. Right. There's an old uh, quote, I can't remember who it is, but it's, it's, uh, you can never live a perfect day until you do something for someone who will never be able to repay you. I think it's 100%. Um, so, I mean, and yeah. I've, I've felt that too, brother. I mean, in, you know, not even within the intention of like feeling something good, just doing something for a friend. Mm. And then after the fact, realizing that like, you know what, I, I took great pleasure in just being there for somebody and helping somebody. And then in, in, in like kind of the wake of that, realizing that, you know, there really, I was not, I truly wasn't looking for any type of reciprocation. Yeah. But and, you're, you're, you're satisfying one of the two most basic biological urges for a man, which is uh, uh, provide and protect on one side and then obviously to procreate, but let's the, the provide and protect part that every meaningful thing you ever do in your life will be in the service of other people, whether it's your family or your community, your country or whatever it is, whether it's people that are just generally speaking in need. Um, and it's why, you know, I, I say this a lot in the show, but I like to hammer it into people's brains. Um, I believe it was Gandhi who said, if you truly want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. Because typically what we do is when we go out looking to help people, we tend to look to help people that are struggling with things that we are either currently struggling with or have struggled with in the path, right? Past. So it's a pathway to, uh, I guess, repairing the damage done to us as well. And totally. it, ju it just happens to be that way, right? So you solve two problems and also yeah. you feel pretty good because you're, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as a human being. Dude, I couldn't agree with you more, brother. I mean, I, you know, I've gone through my own struggles with mental health and, you know, I found deep relief, uh, through a number of things, but the catalyst was, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy and in going back and supporting guys that are about to go through and, and actually volunteering at retreats like that, I walk away feeling like, I mean, I feel selfish. Like I, I, I took so much away from, from being there as a supporting friend, uh, that it, you know, it, it keeps me coming back. Right. And you don't anticipate that, but it's almost better going back in support of that type of effort 
than going through the effort itself. Right. Yeah. And it's a, that's a good analog for military or any other kind of service in general. Service doesn't end when your military service ends, right? Uh, for a lot totally. of people, and, and like, I think for most people, it should be only the beginning, right? Because now you have this breadth of experience. And one of the most important qualities uh, that can only be developed in the crucible, which is to be calm and reasonable in chaos, right? That's, that's a skill that most people will never get to learn. And we have, yep. you know, through, I mean, look, it wasn't exactly fun all the time, but we did have the opportunity to learn that. And if you, if you have that kind of skill, I think it's important to make sure that you're exercising in a way that helps other people. Yeah, totally. And, you know, so many people struggle when they leave. So let's focus on the military. People leave service and they go through this, uh, this period of struggle. And there's a number of reasons why people struggle when they transition, but one of which is like a loss of, of purpose. And, you know, the, the purpose, you know, really is kind of like that ability to serve your brothers, right? Your, your, your brothers in arms when you're, you're in a combat arms profession. And when you walk away from that and, and people can't apply themselves in a, in a way to serve others outside of the military, I think you get lost. I mean, I think it, it leaves a massive void in your life and you try to reinvent yourself. You try to just kind of find a job and, and provide. Uh, but if you're not finding ways to support others and serve others uh, continually throughout life, um, it definitely leaves a, a you know, a, a want, a desire that sure. is going to be left unfilled. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and it's, uh, um, <clears throat> I want to touch on something you said at the outset there. Uh, it's, like when you joined the military, it was do, you were doing something to challenge yourself, right? Um, mm -hmm. To better yourself, and you know, there's we're we're in an age these days where people talk a lot about self care, uh, but mostly it's just uh, it's just like completely self centered people that don't want to experience any kind of pain or struggle. That's usually the people that talk about that stuff, but it is real that that's necessary. Uh, my friend Andy Priscilla likes to say that personal excellence is the ultimate rebellion, right? So looking at all the struggle, like it's what makes the great truly great. When we see uh, like Jordan or Kobe or somebody like that face some kind of challenge and they would not bitch about it, they would just be like, you know what, fuck you. I'm going to go out and destroy this guy now, right? That's It's that attitude that keeps us moving forward. And if you can align that kind of attitude uh, like that that capture of the masculine aggression and need to succeed and 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 marry that with helping people right you can do a lot of good work totally and you got to take care of yourself first i mean it's it runs counter to kind of like how we are we are raised in the military right you always want to take care of everybody else but if you're not pursuing excellence um personally like you can't you can't be there in a a significant way for other people and you're not going to give them the the most powerful components of who you are if you're not taking care of yourself right you the last thing you want to be is uh out of breath and at muscle failure when you're trying to drag your buddy out of the fire you know what i mean totally like that that's yeah. that no, nothing could possibly make you feel more useless than that frankly um yeah i want to move on to the next one it's uh, i'll put more into this country than i take out of it and i think it's something that it's it's very obvious to people like us because of the careers we've had and stuff like that. It was very obvious what service meant. But, you know, only 0.45% of the population serves in the military in a, in a like a combat fashion, right? 
So, uh, but you found, and a lot of other people have found, even after the military, ways to serve. And I think it's a good example, right, to make sure that we're letting people know, like, hey, serving isn't something I did. It's who I am, and it's who you should be as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we are all responsible for one another. So I wonder, from your perspective, um, what does it mean to put more into the country than you take out of it? Well, well, I'll start by saying that, like, you know, you have people, a lot of people always will thank you for, for serving, you know, appreciate the fact that you were in the military, you served during, during combat years. And, you know, I, hey, I, I appreciate that. But I, I have been given so much through the service that, that I, I gave to this country that I, I feel forever indebted mm. to the to this country. And I feel forever indebted to the SEAL teams because it gave me the opportunity to pursue excellence and to become something that, you know, frankly, I don't know if I would have, I would be in the same place. And you know what? I wouldn't be in the same place that I am right now if it weren't for the opportunity to serve this country. So I, you know, the the drive to serve others, yeah, it may be innate and in, in biologically ingrained in who I am as a human being, but it comes from a drive to give back to to a country that gave me everything that I am today. And, uh, you know, if I, I can find something that it keeps me fired up, you know, drives passion in my life after service, and I can, I can plow myself into that to help others, I feel like I'm slowly repaying a debt that I'll never fully repay, you know, because I, I feel like the only people that fully uh, repaid that debt are those that sacrificed their mm-hmm. life uh, in defense of this country. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let, let's uh, let me play devil's avocado here a little bit. Let's say you're somebody who doesn't feel that way, who hasn't necessarily uh, either had the same kind of opportunities or or uh, didn't know that they were available or whatever, just decided not to use them. And now you know, there's a lot of nihilism in our culture, a lot of cynicism these days mm-hmm. uh, about, <clears throat> you know, how <sighs> everything's rigged against us and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And look, th- there there's certainly examples of that. Um, and whether or not it's true, doesn't really matter because people feel that way. Right. And that's what's mm-hmm. important. So, uh, how would you, how would you speak to somebody like that and try to get them back on board and, and on our side of the tug of war rope, I guess? Well, I mean, the, the being a cynic, right. Or a nihilist, uh, is just part of the problem, right? You're not part of the solution. You're just, you're perpetuating negativity. Um, and you're not doing anything to proactively change the situation. So, I, I've been a huge advocate of uh, meditation, mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, in the last several years um, as part of my kind of journey back to, to wholeness. And I'll tell you that, and I, I tell my children this, you are in control. You are, you're the captain of your ship, in essence, and you can decide whether or not you're joyful, whether you're going to be angry, whether you're going to be resentful or hateful. Uh, or cynical, it's only it's all up to you, right? No one else can drive um, drive you to that place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, for anybody that's kind of embracing this, like I don't care, throw my hands up in the air, just give up and blame everybody else. You know, you 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 truly haven't embraced kind of like who you really are and the fact that you are in control of your own destiny. And it starts with each individual embracing that type of mindset. It, you know, a controlling mindset over where your awareness goes and how you how you look at the world and how you treat other people. 
And, uh, you know, frankly, if, if every single person in this world just held themselves accountable for the way that they felt every day and didn't blame everybody else, they would probably be much happier in this world. It would be a much better place. Yeah, um, and yeah. maybe that's altruistic, but you know, it's a very simple practice. Uh, you just, you just have to, you kind of have to lower kind of drop the ego a bit and, and, you know, hold yourself personally accountable for, for how you feel and how you look at the world every day. Yeah. Perspective plays a big role in, in, in all this stuff, right? I mean, it's, um, think of it as just acting in good faith. If somebody asks you a question that they really want an answer to, or they're trying to figure something out and you answer with a platitude or, uh, you patronize them or something, they can tell, right? They totally. can tell, and you're not you're not you're not engaged in a real conversation at that point. You're basically just wasting everybody's time. Yeah, well, it'd be vulnerable too, right? It, it, when you blame somebody else or you're pointing at something else as the cause of your problems, like you're not you're not being vulnerable with the fact like with the fact that like you know you're you're probably I every single person. Uh, can attribute something that they're doing to their problems, right? I mean, to or to some situation, and I think holding holding ourselves personally accountable to to any degree um, for for a situation that upsets you or uh, you're not aligned with is is the starting point. And every single person can do that. I don't. There's not a person walking this the face of the earth that that can't hold themselves accountable for something, um, some part of something that is upsetting to them. Right. Um, since we're talking about, um, attitude and service and stuff, I want to pivot into the vets thing. Tell me what this program is exactly. I think, uh, Jared's talked about it on drinker bills before, but we haven't really discussed that program here on citizen before. Yeah. So veterans exploring treatment solutions is a nonprofit. It was started by uh, a dear friend of mine and his wife, a guy, Marcus Capone, who is a, uh, a SEAL team operator, and then his wife, Amber Capone. And uh, frankly, it's it, I think it's probably one of the leading organizations right now in this country, and, and perhaps globally, uh, advocating uh, for the use of psychedelics in a you know controlled, um, you know, kind of supervised fashion. All right, folks, we got some advertisements to keep this show on. First and foremost, BlackRifleCoffee.com. You know them, Evan, Matt, Jared, lunatics. But the coffee's really good. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and you will get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. I mean, you're not going to get... The coffee is really good. You're not going to get better coffee anywhere, right? Especially not delivered straight to your door like this. And, you know... The coffee club is specifically designed around what Evan, who is a giant coffee nerd, wanted out of his coffee purchasing experience. That's how he uh, developed the entire thing. You know what I mean? So it is designed with you in mind, with the customer in mind. Black Rifle Coffee is a veteran-owned and operated company and supports uh, America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. You can get premium coffee Delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, rounds, and delivery schedule anytime that you like. And it'll show up whenever uh, whenever you tell it to. Members get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts as well. So now's the time to sign up. Get 20% off your first order 
with the code CITIZEN. Go to blackriflecoffee.com and get those deals. Next up, GhostBed. They get the best beds in the world. They're offering 40% off for GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base and 30% off everything else if you use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. You can get a mattress for about 25 35 bucks a month. They've got a 0% uh, down, $0 down financing plan for up to 60 months. And even if you're not looking for a bed or an adjustable base, um, the sheets, the pillows, the weighted blanket, the mattress topper, it's all excellent. All of it's cooling uh, for, you know, big, sweaty, dumb guys like us. And, you know, they're a good company. They take care of us. So reach out to those guys. Make sure you get those deals while they're still there. This episode of Citizens is also brought to you by Ghostbed dot com forward slash drinking bros right now ghostbed is offering 40 percent off ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base for everything else 30 percent off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros if you get the uh 40 off deal if you use the 40 off bundle deal you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff your base your sheets your pillows all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month They've got a zero down, zero percent financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months. That's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you, works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drinking bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best. The mattress protector, the weighted blanket, they have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. This episode is also brought to you by mybookie.com. You know them and you love them, folks. And it is uh, high time for betting. I know a lot of you lost all your money on the national championship game because Georgia absolutely destroyed TCU. You know, it's going to happen sometimes, but it's time to reload. Now, if you've already used the Drinking Bros code to double your deposit up to 1000 bucks, I got some good news for you. Go ahead and sign up today. Use the promo code AMERICAN. That's AMERICAN to secure your first deposit bonus up to 1000 bucks with mybookie.com. Whatever you put in, they'll meet you halfway all the way up to 1000 So if you put in $1,000, you are going to get an extra $1,000 to gamble with. Make sure you get those deals in. Make sure you get the bets in. And get ready, man. Reload your account uh, for, for let's see, the NFL playoffs. And soon we have March Madness coming up, about a month and a half. That's going to start. Man, it's going to be an exciting time where we can lose a lot of money, uh, but hopefully gain some as well. So getting started is simple. You deposit, uh, uh, you know, 300 bucks, immediately play with 200. Use the promo code American to claim the MyBookie uh, deposit bonus. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. All right, we got interrupted there by some tech issues. Uh, so tell me about VETS. Yeah, so Vets uh, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions is a nonprofit that uh, my good friend Marcus Capone, who served in the SEAL teams, and his wife Amber Capone started really to advocate for uh, you know those struggling with mental health issues and traumatic brain uh, injury um, within the veteran community. And, and Vets has been focused predominantly on on soft veterans because you have to start someplace. You don't have the resources to help everybody all at once. Um, but a big part of the organization beyond providing grants for, for guys to go down to countries where, you know, these modalities are legal, 
and and have a retreat experience, a peak psychedelic experience. And the organization is really focused on political advocacy and research uh, because we feel like through political advocacy and research, we can get these modalities uh, legalized medically within the United States. So our veteran community doesn't need to go to Mexico or Costa Rica or elsewhere uh, to seek healing. And I think we can impact a bigger subset of the population uh, through advocacy and research. And, and there's some tremendous uh, stuff going on. You know, vets uh, partnered up with Stanford Medical School uh, on an Ibogaine study. And Ibogaine is, is one of the predominant psychedelics that's been beneficial for our guys. And that study uh, has concluded they're going to release a research paper this coming year. And uh, already the, the lead researchers are, are telling us that it's, it's tremendous. I mean, there is, there is legitimate scientific uh, evidence that this stuff is, is helping to heal the brain, uh, you know, specifically uh, concussive injury, mm. uh, concussive uh, uh, injury and, and the, the things that fall out from those type of injuries. And, and then outside of that, you know, there's a whole psycho-spiritual component to it, you know, unlocking the compartmentalization that helps us so much while we're in combat and, and dealing with high stress scenarios uh, is is like our worst enemy when we leave the military. And it, you know, these experiences help to unlock a lot of that compartmentalization and, you know, frankly, allow you to kind of address the things that were unaddressable and, and bring you back to the place you were before you, you know, you, you endured the stressors that, that we all endured yeah, uh, sure. overseas and fighting. Yeah, the uh, the breaking down the compartmentalization thing is really interesting because um, it's it's almost like there's dead rats in the wall and you got to tear the drywall out. Like you can't see them, but you can smell them. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Like, yeah, and it's not always a problem, but when it's a problem, it's a problem. And it's something that's <clears throat> particularly in the soft community with all the explosions and shit um, is uh, very prevalent. Tell me, tell me about, I assume you've done uh, the Ibogaine treatment. I have. Tell me about that experience. And t tell me what Ibogaine is exactly. I, I know, but just for the audience, tell me what it is. And then tell me about your experience. Yeah. So Ibogaine is uh, the, the dominant alkaloid that's found in a number of plants, but uh, specifically a plant called the Boga tabernath that's, that's found in equatorial Africa, specifically Gabon. And uh, the native population there, the Boides, actually have used it for eons as a rite of passage. They, they actually source the... Uh, ibogaine and other alkaloids from the root bark of iboga and in the west ibogaine was was first uh seen as a an addiction disruptor you know the i think howard lotsoff uh was the first person in the west really to utilize ibogaine and identify its benefits he was a uh a heroin addict and he went through an i a boga he actually had a full-blown iboga trip which is longer than ibogaine uh by a factor of like you know, three to five X and, and came out of that experience completely sober. Um, you know, no cravings, no withdrawal symptoms. And he had been a, a long-term heroin user. So it had been used in the West to break uh, addictive patterns, specifically with opiate addicts. And then, you know, they're outside of addiction. Um, you know, we're now seeing that it's, it's helping with uh, concussive injury, uh, neuroinflammation, mm. um, you know, release a brain-derived neurogrowth factor and, and kind of neurogenesis and kind of just that reduction of inflammation, I think, is really helping the brain and the connective tissue, the the, the neurons heal. And uh, 
Yeah, the experience is is uh, unlike any other psychedelic experience that exists. Uh, Ibogaine's classified as an as an onirogen, which is a dream producing compound. So, when you take it, uh, you know you're pretty much a toxic. You're you're laying down, you know you're medically supervised, and when your eyes are closed or covered, you're you're in like a waking REM state. So very clear, very vivid visions of you know, a lot of it is is kind of your your life. Mm. Uh, unlike other psychedelics, it's very grounded in who you are and your past and your memories. And, you know, people that take it, you know, I'd say 60 to 70% will actually have this visionary experience. And I mean, beyond description, but, you know, you, you can recall memories from a third person perspective as if you were an omniscient observer watching yourself and people in your past, like, um, you know, going through things that are memories of yours. And, you know, it, it's a very uh, teaching experience. Mm. It, you're able to deal with, you know, tougher things in your life that you might have compartmentalized for a reason because it was hurtful or, or, or very painful and be able to kind of address them in a, in a non-painful, non-hurtful manner. Um, and it's not dissociating from it. It's actually addressing it and figuring out why you feel so much pain and why you mm. carry and, and harbor resentment or something like that. Yeah, exper so, experiential avoidance just doesn't work in in in, no. li in life or in psychology, psychotherapy either. I mean, it just the, the, for for the listeners out there, a lot of this sounds really technical. But from your perspectives, I, I assumed a lot of you have probably participated in cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is kind of that, yep. but it's internal cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's it, think think about it this way. So <clears throat> you get put inside of your mind with your problems, and your brain, being the problem solver that it is, solves that problem. Right. That's and, and whatever it happens to be, whether you're coming to grips with something, identifying something to work on later, whatever it is, it's it's essentially three years of psychotherapy and and several hours. Right. Oh, it could be like a lifetime of psychotherapy, right? It's like, I mean, there's stuff that that you come out of that experience realizing and truly understanding that you know you, you could sit in psychotherapy for decades and and maybe avoid it, right? Because you're, you know, we're probably the best at avoiding stuff that's uh, hurtful, painful, and you know you don't even know you need to address certain things because you don't want to touch it, right? And uh, you're kind of forced with it. You're forced to address it in the experience in a way that is manageable. And by making it manageable, you, you truly can actually figure something out and you can take something away that's going to be fruitful for you after the experience. Yeah, it's really, it's a really interesting process. And, um, I want to, I want to circle back on the addiction thing. So, so far as I can tell, just from years of being involved in it and research and stuff, there, there's a couple of primary issues that most, at least male veterans deal with. All right, back to it. Uh, we got interrupted again, but the uh, three, some of the major problems that especially male veterans run into are the purposelessness, right? Like your, your entire life is defined by having a set of skills and applying those skills in a very specific way towards a specific outcome, right? That's a very, mm -hmm. it, it's, it sucks sometimes to be in the military, but that part of it is super easy, easier than regular life for sure. Um, totally. And then, of course, there's 
traumatic brain injury and things like that, which is pretty common. Um, and then, you know, addiction is a big part of it as well. A lot of dudes with leg and back injuries who, for some reason, the uh, TRICARE and the VA decided to give us whatever pills we asked for for a good 15 years, and, and that didn't work out. Imagine that, right? Um, yeah, or didn't ask for, right? Yeah, yeah exactly, were, yeah. Hey, I, I, I went in with this problem, and, you know, the solution is let's numb it and avoid it right. instead of going to the root cause. Yeah, and the, the reason I'm bringing it up, that last point, is because you talked about the guy that had the long-term heroin addiction. Now, I've, I know people personally who have had long-term prescription painkiller addictions and have done Ibogaine one time and ended that mm -hmm. in one session. Yep. Totally. It's not unheard of. I mean, that's the reason. I mean, people that are out of options have gone to Ibogaine as an option. And hey, frankly, I mean, the, the, the success rate is uncanny compared to any other type of treatment. And, and granted, you know, it's not the magic pill, right? You, you have to go back into a positive environment. You got to put the work in yourself afterwards, but to disrupt that addictive pattern, there's nothing else in the world like it that I've seen. Yeah. Um, and I've experienced it too. I mean, I, I went into, uh, my Ibogaine experience, um, <laughs> kind of like not admitting that I had an alcohol issue, but I was habitually drinking, uh, to numb and to dissociate from the shit that I was compartmentalizing. And I, I walked out of Ibogaine, you know, didn't go in with the intent to stop drinking, but I walked away from Ibogaine and I mean, like literally lost all desire, all urge to drink. And, uh, you know, frankly, I haven't drank, I mean, in the last three years. Uh, and not that I like condemn it at all. You know, I think that it's, it can be a, a healthy practice, you know, but for me, it was, it became unhealthy and, you know, maybe I, I, the Ibogaine, Ibogaine knew better than me because mm. uh, it wasn't a healthy part of my life. And, you know, that, that addiction disruptive uh, component of the experience was, was tremendous for me. What do you think it was about it that, made you was it uh the the stuff you were trying to numb wasn't there anymore necessarily or what, what was it that made you just kind of back away from alcohol like that so i so there was like a uh a physiologic kind of like aversion to it first off like you know i took a sip of uh i took a drink you know a month or two afterwards and it just didn't taste good mm. like it used to uh but i i think that i just had this i had such clarity afterwards you know just i i everything was clear and my priorities were clear and for me you know i'm a father of two kids you know being present for my son and my daughter became i mean yeah duh it's like the most important thing in my life but i think i was putting so much other stuff ahead of them rationalizing that these other things whether it be work or you know my personal happiness or whatever that stuff was more important than my kids. And I think walking away, I just, I, I had such clarity of thought and clarity of prioritization that I just didn't want to muddy those waters ever again. Like mm. it just felt good to know what is important and to live a life that is, you know, prioritized in that respect. And those are, that's all like um, your internal dialogue and stuff, which is good because the mindset really matters. But do you know of anything or do you, do you know what happens physiologically that, that spurs some of the stuff as well? You know, I mean, I've heard, and I, again, like I began pharm pharmacologically, if I said that right, mm -hmm. is uh, one of the most complex compounds out there, right? So when you look at an Ibogaine, the Ibogaine molecule, uh, it's just crazy complex. And 
you know, the researchers are trying to understand it. I mean, the same way that they're trying to understand antidepressants and other type of kind of mental health uh, medicines. You know, we, we don't even know. We know that they, they interact with certain neuroreceptors. But beyond that, we don't understand how what's going on in the brain after the fact. I mean, that's what all this research is getting plowed into. I think the simplest way that somebody had described to me is that it, from like an opiate addiction standpoint, it's like those those receptors are like damaged mm. and from years of opiate abuse. And it's literally like wiping the receptors clean and giving you kind of a fresh start. So it's like kind of pressing like the hard reset button on the computer um, and then giving you a fresh start where those those neuroreceptors are are back to the way they were prior to opiate abuse. And, you know, they don't need you know, they don't need whatever it is, Oxycontin or mm. Vicodin or heroin um, to feel satiated anymore. So it's it's kind of just like a, a, a hard reset of the old CPU um, yeah, yeah. in, in, the, in the, the most dumbed down version humanly possible. <clears throat> no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, uh, it seems like it's been like I know a lot of people that have gone through this uh, and you know, the results are, it's, it's, it, you said the word uncanny earlier. It is kind of, unc- it's like the same result every single time. Right. Which yeah. is kind of weird. Um, yeah. like you don't see that with other styles of treatment. Usually it's pretty unique to the individual and look, there are, there are parts of it here that are unique as well because everybody has unique experiences, but the outcome generally speaking is, has been the same so far as I can tell. Yeah. It's pretty prolific. I mean, that's, I mean, Hey, I, I never I wasn't a user of illicit drugs uh, before this. I had never smoked anything. I had never like taken anything that you would have classified as a uh, as like a drug. Mm. And you know this it it's made me a complete evangelist because of the good that I have seen come out of this. I mean it's the reason why you know I feel compelled to share. You know tell my you know my story is my story, but the outcome is so similar for everybody for the most part that goes through that it, it need people need to know about it. Um, and you know, as a country, we, we should really be seriously looking at these things as a, uh, a solution mm. as opposed to the band aid kind of temporary fix that we're getting out of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and, and the like that's being prescribed to, you know, not just veterans, but our population as a whole. Right, um, yeah. Well, you know, this stuff, this stuff is, incredible the government and uh pharmaceutical companies are always going to be scared of things that grow in the ground right totally because they're harder to monitor very hard to pat yeah um <laughs> and that that is that is what it is uh before uh we'll, we'll wrap up here in a sec but tell me about your company protect yeah i mean protect was born out of kind of me getting well and me finding kind of this path to wellness again i mean it's it kind of is intrinsically connected to kind of what we've been talking about with, with psychedelics and, and meditation. Um, you know, we wanted to build a company that gave people tools to galvanize the foundational habits and routines in their life that we know move the needle. And, you know, those, some of those things for me personally were uh, better hydration in order to yield uh, better sleep, healthier sleep. And, you know, fl- frankly, sleep is like, it's either the root of all evil or it can be the solution to kind of all of your health concerns if you're getting, you know, enough of it and, and quality sleep. So the company was born to, to give people some tools to, to kind of enact better habits and routines surrounding sleep and hydration. And 
you know, we produce a whole lineup of liquid packs. So liquid, not powder, um, hydration. So we have like a performance electrolyte product. We have a sleep support that's non-melatonin. Um, so it doesn't leave you groggy and it's not habit forming, um, immune system support. And we have an energy, you know, all of them are, you know, without sugar, um, we use stevia and, uh, mm. are really designed to kind of make water taste better, get you hydrating better and give you a fundamental nutrition to support, you know, better sleep. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm drinking the energy one now. Um, I've always been a big fan of your products. I don't, I don't know that a lot of people, um, from our side, look, I, I learned about it through Baker actually through, I think it was black, yep. black rifles, uh, hunter recruitment project was the first time I went down there to film some stuff with them. And he was throwing this stuff around. And I'm look, I drink a lot of water, but I I don't drink a lot of just plain water because it's gross. Terrible. Right? Yeah. It's fucking boring, <laughs> man. Um, so usually yeah. what I've, you know, I put, I've supplemented with a lot of stuff over the years. Um, most stuff has sugar in it. And then there's like, yep. me, there's like Mio and stuff like that, but it doesn't really taste like anything. You know what I mean? It just, it tastes different than water, but it doesn't taste like anything. Uh, the flavors yeah. of your stuff are, are really good. I haven't tried the, uh, the rest formula yet, but I will, I'm going to pick some of that up and, and check it out and see if I like it because I, I'm, I hear you on that melatonin thing. I do like it for sleep, but it does certainly make me feel really groggy in the morning. And I hate that shit. In melatonin, I mean, it's a, it's a hormone uh, and a lot of people don't realize that. So like, you know, not dissimilar to, to any other type of like hormone supplementation. If you're putting a bunch of it in your system, your your body says, okay, I don't need to produce this anymore. So coming off of kind of a long use of long-term use of melatonin can actually be tough. Um, you're, you can get really disrupted sleep because you're not producing that melatonin naturally anymore. So I'm all about minimum, vi- like minimum viable. So if, if we can produce something that just kind of gets you feeling more relaxed and, and helps you go to sleep, but doesn't supplement the the thing that your body naturally produces, it's a better option. Yeah, I like it. Uh, uh, that's a good idea. I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna check that out. I, I just added some to my cart right now. Um, <laughs> now, before we uh, get out of here for real, and by the way, that it's protect p r o t e k t dot com. You can, that's where you can find the products. Correct. Before we get out of here, tell people where they can find more information on uh, vets and yep. and if they're you know if they qualify, what the process is like for getting involved in the in the organization. Yeah, so you can go to vetsolutions.org. Um, that's the website. You know the the organization is focused right now on you know former special operations veterans, uh, and I believe two or more combat deployments. And again, it's not to say that special operations veterans with two deployments are the only ones that need this stuff. Everybody can benefit. Um, but you know, limited resources, trying to, to really have an impact on a community to be a spokesperson to enact political change, uh, for everyone. And, you know, that change is going to hopefully permeate into the, the department of veterans affairs. And, you know, I hope, I hope this stuff is available for every single combat veteran, because I will say that, you know, when I served over in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, some of the most heroic uh, things that I saw on the battlefield were things that, you know, infantry, uh, army and and combat Marines uh, did in, you know, while I was out there with them. So, you know, I have so many friends that I, I look up to as warriors that weren't special operations. And, and yet I, <laughs> you know, I, my actions pale in per comparison to theirs. So, you know, the, the goal of the organization is to, to, 
be an advocate for everyone and get this stuff uh, out there and readily available. Yeah, this Stanford thing should be good. I mean, I was uh, I lived in uh, Oakland back in the day um, after I was out of the army, and they were doing. I think it was 2013. They were doing MDMA tests on PTSD already, right? So they've been they've been involved yep. in this for quite a while. Just finding the funding for it, and then uh, you know finding a group of people that is for lack of a better phrase sexy enough to to yeah. uh to you know get attention and you know veter- sure. veterans do that so I, it's it's another yeah. kind of another arena in in post service life where you have a responsibility to like it's not just about you getting help it's about fucking pioneering new modalities for help right that's yeah. that's a big part of it yeah. Hey, if I'm if I'm going to utilize the the seal card or the platform for anything right now, I mean, I think that this is has the biggest impact. Cool. Yeah. Well, look, man, I appreciate you coming on today. This has been really uh, a really interesting talk. A lot of good information. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Yeah. Anytime, man. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.